is Jerry Prokopovich at East Carolina University with Civil War Talk Radio. What do you do when you go to visit Chicago? If you're interested in the Civil War, you might go to the Chicago Historical Society, or maybe you go to the mass grave of Confederate POWs from Camp Douglas. Maybe you go to Lincoln Park or Grant Park, look at the statues. But if you're really interested in this era, the place you find time to visit is 357 West Chicago Avenue and the legendary Abraham Lincoln Bookshop. It's part bookstore, part museum, part antique dealer, and in many ways a part of history itself. We'll be back in a minute to visit the Abraham Lincoln Bookshop and talk to its owner and proprietor, Daniel R. Weinberg, on Civil War Talk Radio. and reduce emissions. Check. Acoustic and optical wayside monitors to enhance safety. Check. Robotic systems to measure track geometry. Check. GPS tracking and tracing systems. Check. Sounds like a rocket or a jet getting ready for takeoff, doesn't it? Actually, it's something just as technologically advanced. A freight train. There's a new world of technology riding the rails that makes today's freight railroads more fuel efficient, safer, and cleaner running than ever. With wireless communications, transponders, and trackside readers that can pinpoint a shipment's location at speeds of up to 80 miles an hour, North America's freight railroads are driving the technology required by today's businesses and consumers. And with everything from apples to computers moving by rail, we wouldn't have it any other way. Chances are, the things you'll use tomorrow are taking the train today. Tomorrow, arriving by train. Sponsored by North America's Freight Railroads. Mission Critical. Two words that describe the data vital to every e-commerce website. If your company needs the services of an unparalleled co-location facility, you need to remember these two words, Castle Access. With Castle Access, your Internet servers will be secure in environmentally controlled data centers that offer high-speed managed Internet access and the highest standards of 24-7 customer support. For more info, visit castleaccess.com. Castle Access. We keep you online all the time. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and joining me today is Dan Weinberg, the owner and proprietor of the Abraham Lincoln Bookshop. Dan, how are you doing today? Very well, Jerry. How are you? Good. Always good to talk to you. And you. Thanks for having me here. Tell us about how the Abraham Lincoln Bookshop got started. It's one of the, the centers of uh, uh, American Civil War studies in terms of places everybody wants to visit, wants to find things. Uh, tell us a little bit about the background of the place. Well, it began in 1938 under the tutelage of Ralph Newman, who had uh, had a bookshop before that, the home of books, actually. And Carl Sandburg, Paul Engel, Lloyd Lewis, uh, they were... In with the Daily News, the old Daily News, and his shop was nearby, and they became customers, especially Sandberg and Lloyd Lewis. And uh, he had been turned to the dark side, as I say, by them, to Lincoln Civil War Studies, and uh, changed the name from Home of Books to Abraham Lincoln Bookshop. Since then, uh, it became, as you say, uh, in a way, ground zero for Lincoln studies, certainly, and Civil War to some extent as well. The Civil War Roundtable movement began here. The Civil War Book Club was here. 
And uh, so that's where we began. I came in in 1971 uh, and uh, became a co-partner with Ralph until 1984, at which time I bought him out and continued on uh, by myself. It's probably 33 years. Well, let, let, you mentioned uh, some of those names that you mentioned at the beginning are people most everyone listening to the show has heard of, uh, certainly Carl Sandburg, uh, Lloyd Lewis, people like that. Uh, who've written Civil War and, and Lincoln things. So the the shop was, was more than just a, a place to buy books, but people gathered there who were interested in the subject. And, exactly. Uh, you, and you suggested they... the Civil War roundtables, they begin to yeah. uh, to meet here, and Ralph would have some of them over for lunch, and uh, they go to a restaurant, and soon they outstripped the restaurant, and they were too many. They said, we need to organize. So uh, they finally made the Civil War Roundtable, which is still here, of course, in Chicago today. And we call ourselves the Civil War Roundtable since there are innumerable ones around the country and even the world now. But the, the Chicago is the, the number one chapter, uh, the, the founding Civil War Roundtable. We'd like to think so, yes. And, uh, well, we, we like to think that Civil War Talk Radio is sort of a, a roundtable of the air, a chance for people to talk with uh, people interested in the subject. And, it's just a good analogy. And sure. uh, we have people come into the roundtables, and any of them, and people might start looking around their own area to see if there are roundtables to join. Uh, and many of us go around on the circuit and speak. Uh, everyone from James McPherson and uh, John Simon and all these well-known people, Gary Gallagher, uh, who come around and talk to the roundtables constantly. So uh, there will be someone coming near most listeners today. That, that's true. It's interesting how uh, how widespread the roundtable movement is. I know you've talked to a lot of groups. I, I have, and uh, I'm sure many people listening uh, belong to roundtables or have spoken at them, for that matter. Exactly. Now, well, that's the one good thing about them. It's not just yeah. the McPhersons. It's, uh, you, it's, it's the hoi polloi, as it were, the, those who have knowledge of certain areas and uh, from within the roundtable, we ask our own membership to come up and give talks. So it's very much people-oriented and driven. That's right. Now, is it true you have the original round table itself at the shop? Well, we do have a round table here at the shop, but no. <laughs> I don't think that was ever the Sepua uh, round table. I think we used to put in leaves, and it was really oval anyway. I see. Now, you said uh, that you became a partner with Ralph Newman in 1971. How did you get interested in the Civil War? Well, I was always interested in history, period, since it's like probably you and many of our listeners. It just kind of came with living, with history. And uh, I enjoyed the reading of it and uh, all of that since I was a kid. Um, I was going into teaching, although it was going to be more English Civil War, Tudor Stewart eras. And uh, I was at NYU in the middle of my doctorate when... Uh, I was working part-time at, at the late, great uh, paperback city in, in Manhattan, and I enjoyed what I was doing, uh, finding the right book for the right person. And uh, I thought about perhaps, instead of going to teaching, uh, going to the book business. So I came back home here in Chicago, and uh, friends brought me to see Ralph Newman. Of course, legendary, as was the shop. And uh, he had been looking for someone at that time, to eventually take over the shop. So it was uh, the right time for both of us, and it was a marriage. So that worked out well. Uh, uh, Ralph, uh, there are innumerable 
Ralph Newman's stories. Uh, perhaps you could share one with us. Well, he was, of course, a raconteur. He knew so many people. I mean, he had presidents in his stable as well. Lyndon Johnson was very close to him, and uh, Sandberg lived above our bookshop for a while before I was there. Uh, and so he he had all these stories. One that I like in particular was uh, with Lyndon Johnson. I had been to Austin, you may have as well, and seen all those bookshelves in the basement of the LBJ Library. Just tons of shelves going on forever, it seems, with books that he had acquired, many of them being given to him. Not sure how much he read, but nonetheless, uh, I'd been in there, and Ralph said that he was down there one time with uh, LBJ and looking through the stacks a bit, and Ralph was taking books off here and there and taking a look at what they were, and he said, oh, uh, this one's valuable, you signed it, he said to LBJ. And LBJ said, well, you mean it's more valuable when I sign it? And Ralph said, yes. He said, oh. And he began taking a book after book after book off the shelf and started to sign them. <laughs> uh, now, Ralph himself had been on, um, I was going to say 60 Minutes as long before that, Edward R. Murrow. Uh, he had also been uh, instrumental in that uh, atomic uh, Lincoln that Disney put together. And so he had been in many different uh, areas, Ralph. So he, he uh, and he collect, collected materials on his own as well. Well, he did, but when I first came, came to him back in 71, and I first went up to his apartment, I looked at all the, the books on his shelves and the things that he had, and I said, but where are all the rarities? And I soon realized that when one's in business, one can't collect in the same area that one sells. Uh, it just does not work. He had beautiful books in great shape, and they were a good reference and a good-looking library and some good material in there. But the rarities, of course, he had to sell to keep bread on the table, as do I. So uh, collect, uh, dealers such as myself usually will collect uh, when you find something and start putting it together as a collection eventually to sell, I presume. But in the, in the meantime, uh, they're one's own collection. So that's... It's interesting that I have some, my collection at home is much the same thing as Ralph's. Nice books and good references and things I've read, uh, things I hope to read, uh, but at the same time, the rarities are here at the shop. So, so one can't very well be a collector and a dealer in the same. Do dealers ever collect things in other fields, like just collect Chinese porcelain or something? Uh, oh, sure. Oh, yes. I mean, that, that's how you can do that, because otherwise you feel that you should be selling to a client or letting a client know, otherwise they'll go elsewhere and forget about you. If Because you, I'm going to have first crack at many of the things that come by. They're one-of-a-kind items, many of them. And if I was the collector, first of all, uh, I'd be broke, although I'd have great things on the wall. Uh, so that's why one has to do it that way. But, but things, for instance, I have a Blackhawk War collection at home right now. Now, I started that because I received something from uh, about Lincoln as a Black Hawk War a captain at discharge. This is now good oh, 27, 28 years ago. And uh, here, he, here was Lincoln as captain of the Black Hawk War, the time that he looked back. That, that was his first elective signature, actually, that I had as well uh, he, when he was getting his armaments for his men. I had two things at once. And that got me started in Black Hawk War and what he was doing. He said, after his nomination for the presidency, among the successes I've had, that is the one that's given me the most pleasure, and that is 
being elected to the captaincy by his friends and his neighbors. So it got me interested in in that part of you know, the aspect of him, and now have oh, seven, eight shelves of Blackhawk War-related material. Uh, and eventually I'll sell that to a, an institution that would like to have that. So that's how I collect. The, uh, the same thing applies in the, the world of public history. I know in my own experience working in a museum, there were ethical constraints against collecting materials in the same thing your institution was collecting, since there'd be an obvious conflict of interest. Yes. Uh, and I guess in your case, the conflict of interest is simply between uh, running a business and, and having things for personal, uh, personal satisfaction. And uh, having uh, shoes on the kids, yes. They're, that's right. You have to do that. But so, there have been some of those times, uh, as you know, some of the legendary uh, stories in the Lincoln biz here in Illinois of, for instance, a, uh, a man of uh, Herbert Fay who ran the Lincoln tomb who had many things given by many people to the tomb that he kept himself. And uh, you remember the story that the state of Illinois had to go after him and they and they did get a few things back, although he actually was able to keep quite a bit. So conflict sometimes happens when, when you're tempted with things that come through one's hands. I, I imagine that would be the case. You said often you sell, uh, in the case of the Black Hawk War collection, in, in due time you'll sell it to an institution. Uh, who are your customers? Who, who ends up getting these, these big-ticket items? I'm thinking if, if our listeners go to Chicago and stop in, uh, we'll talk more in a minute about uh, all there is to, to, to see and to consider there. But if you're selling a, a really big-ticket item, a collection that might be worth tens of thousands or more, who's going to buy that? Well, they're, I mean, they're, the people who are looking at it are collectors, of course, and there are a good deal of uh, people out who have interest in acquiring because they, well, one, because they're a collector, you know, that... Uh, it's hard to get away from that. It's almost in the DNA. Either one is or was, or one's not. Um, and the other is going to be, of course, the institutions. Today, the institutions have more problems because they don't have the cash that some of these collectors do, especially on the high end. And they need angels to help them out to acquire things. Um, but it's going to be the museums, the institutions, libraries, uh, and the collectors who will get those things. Sometimes those collectors will eventually donate or sell their materials to institutions. Uh, and of course, things are coming out of institutions sometimes as well because they have material that's been given to them over the years that are not part of their missions. And they feel that there's money there just sitting and rotting in their basement. And they sell it, get it out to the marketplace, and uh, then use that money for what their missions are. So those are the two that would usually get things of that sort. What, what would you say if somebody said, you know, this is an interesting business, but isn't it doing a disservice to the historical community because it takes uh, documents out of the reach of scholars and puts them in the hands of private collectors? Well, I don't think the information is out of the reach of scholars. And, for instance, I have a letter right now that is unpublished. And uh, it is, a, I think, one of the top two or three letters Lincoln ever wrote. <clears throat> Yet... Uh, I have just found a, uh, a gentleman who's going to purchase this, and he's going to let scholars know about it. <clears throat> Excuse me. So the content is there. Um, and with artifacts as well, I always find that when I was doing a book that I co 
authored called Lincoln's Assassins, and it's all the artifacts of the period of the execution of the conspirators. Well, we had to go to collectors who were very forthcoming in helping let us see their material, study it, photograph it. So collectors are very much involved in the community and in showing off uh, their collections, going to historical societies, roundtables, schools, libraries. Uh, I find the vast majority of collectors are very open about these things and want everyone to enjoy these things. In fact, collectors have the opportunity to get things into people's hands, especially younger people who otherwise would never touch history and maybe think of it only as a cold subject because they go into a museum and it's behind bars and glass and away from them and they might look at it but never be able to touch a real piece of, of history that might be important to them. So collectors do a great service in that regard in being able to bring it out to the community. Well, I think that that's uh, uh, certainly a positive way of looking at it. And I think, uh, uh, with I suppose if you had no collectors, uh, the material would be less desirable and perhaps would uh, be less well cared for as well. Let me uh, ask, uh, I've suggested we're here in a sense doing a radio visit of the uh, bookstore. Do you have a website? Uh, yes, uh, alincolnbookshop.com. A. Lincoln Bookshop is one word, of course. So if listeners want to continue listening but open another browser window and look at uh, what's in the store today, they can go to www.alincolnbookshop.com and uh, follow along from there. Yes, I, I encourage. It's, a, it's, it's an extension of us. And uh, we'll show a little bit. In fact, we'll see. We just took some photographs of the shop. I don't know why we never did this before. And we'll hopefully soon our server will be able to put them up for us. That would be be interesting to see. You mentioned uh, having a a new letter, uh, previously unknown letter, unpublished letter by Abraham Lincoln. Uh, they came across your desk. Yes. And that contains new information, or at least a, a, a new insight into what Lincoln thought at a particular time. Uh, when was that letter written? Well, the it was in response to a letter, excuse me, from Thomas Corwin, who had been a uh, governor and a senator from Ohio, and he had heard Lincoln speak, you know, in, uh, in 59 on in Cincinnati and Cleveland, and he asked Lincoln a question in uh, and, and Lincoln responded on October 9th of 1859. And it has, it's not in the collected works. It's not been seen. It was part of the fa Corwin family, actually, all this time. They knew they had it, but it just never had uh, surfaced to, to give scholars the chance to take a look at it. And it is really, I think, one of the finest letters he ever wrote because it's so early that he's espousing his views on slavery. So this is 1859. This is before he's running for president. Yes. And he's discussing what uh, what his views are. He's expressing in his opposition to slavery, I gather, in this letter. Uh, Actually, he's giving a very forthright and succinct view of what the Republican Party was. And, and the party at that time had to be uh, opposed to slavery. That was their, their main uh, platform. We'll come back in a few minutes and talk more with Dan Weinberg on Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Pro. East Carolina University. <laughs>